Welcome to the beautiful campus of LCMSU, everyone. Who are you? I am the Chancellor. Yeah, baby. Pastor Marcus Zill. We are back at it here again today in the Student Union with Pastor David Kind. How are you doing today, David? Good, Pastor Zill. How are you? Doing fantabulous. Second week in a row. Last week uh, we had you. You are one of our contributors here on the Student Union. Last week you you were our expert on polygamy in the Old Testament. And today you are playing church historian. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Crusades. now, how did now first though tell tell everybody just to refresh and, and maybe some people didn't hear last week's show. Where are you located and uh, what do you do and uh, where? What tell us a little bit about your campus ministry? Yeah, I'm the uh, campus pastor at University Lutheran Chapel in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a campus ministry that primarily serves the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities. It's one of the oldest campus ministries in the country. Started back in 1925. And uh, I've been pastor there for just over 16 years. So love working with the students, love the way they, they challenge me and keep me on my toes. And you have the added uh, intrigue of having been a former student of that campus ministry yourself, right? That's right. Yeah, it was the influence of the campus ministry that actually convinced me to go into the ministry myself. Well, and that is, you know, I keep telling people uh, uh, whenever I have a chance that I would love to see the, see the statistics on, you know, we put a lot of our... Uh, effort into our Concordia University system in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod for pre-sem students and otherwise. And I know you were admissions counselor at our Fort Wayne Seminary for a couple years back in the day, but it's really quite amazing how many young men end up going to seminary straight from our campus ministries at secular campuses. Yeah, that's right. Our, our campus ministry has a, a strong history of that, as most of them do. Uh, of sending men to the seminary. We've had, I think, uh, 26, 27 guys go in the last 30 years. Um, so, you know, that's not a bad average. That That is fantastic. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, people people don't realize not everybody decides they want to be a, a pastor or a, a deaconess or whatever right when they're 17 years old thinking about where they're going to go to school. But I would like to think that our solid, faithful campus ministries have a lot to do with that. So uh, thank you for gifting your young men and uh, ladies if they've gone on to be deaconesses to the greater church. Anyways, Pastor Kind, what I always love is every time we have a conference for LCMSU, you get one of these topics. Two times ago was polygamy. This time we had our conference on religious liberty, and you decided to tackle the question of the Crusades. And as we know, on a college campus, um, with all the deconstructing of, of, of Christian culture and whatnot and history, I am quite confident that many of our college students are often hit up with questions about, but what about the Crusades? What about the Crusades? Christians were, were given to violence. You know, what, what are some of the popular kind of ideas that people get to the Crusades that are, that are out there today? Yeah, well, the, the popular conception of the Crusades is that this was a, a horrible, evil thing that the Christian church did similar to, to Muslims uh, conducting jihad. Uh, you know, we had this holy war trying to stamp out Islam, 
just killing people like crazy, um, and that, uh, you know, the Church did this as the Christian Church, um, trying to conquer the world for Christ, kind of the same way that Muhammad tried to conquer the world for Allah. It's a terrible misconception of what the Crusades actually were and the, and the actual history behind them. Um, the Crusades, you know, while, while they certainly were, had an aspect of being holy war, you know, the whole idea of taking up the cross sure. and going on pilgrimage is, is obviously uh, a religious aspect of the wars. They weren't holy wars in the same way that, that say, a jihad is. They were not wars tr- attempting to convert anybody to Christianity. They were really wars of defense. Now, if we look at the rise of Islam, this is really what precipitated the Western Christendom rising up and saying, we need to go to war. A lot of people portray Islam as a very peaceful religion. And no doubt, there are many Muslims who are very peaceful, peaceful and peace-loving people. But when you actually look at the history of Islam, especially the early history of Islam, it's a history of conversion by conquering. So when you read the Quran, for instance, you'll find, you'll find verses that promote this, such as, um, as this one, which says, uh, Fight them until there is no more fitna, and worship is for Allah alone. That comes from the Quran in Surah al-Baqarah, uh, line 193. Hmm. Now, the, the word fitna there, fight them until there is no more fitna. A fitna is, is someone who's, who doesn't believe in Allah. It's an unbeliever. So the command in the Quran is fight them until there's no one left except those people who worship Allah. And then you have this one, again from the Quran. When you meet those who disbelieve, smite at their necks. So when you have killed and wounded many of them, then bind a bond firmly on them. Thus you are ordered to carry out jihad against disbelievers until they embrace Islam. That comes from Surah Muhammad 4. Well, isn't it kind of hard to... Uh, to believe in Islam if you don't have your neck? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the problem. Yes. Is they're saying if you don't convert, sure. we're, going to, we're going to chop off your head. That's the whole idea of, of beheading that we see even today you know, in, in the extreme forms of uh, Islamic terror and such. And it does seem um, like the jihadists that we see, like when you think of uh, those, was it those 19 martyrs in Libya? Yeah. Um, from a couple of years ago, that uh, when it comes down to those that specifically, they'll, they'll, there's all seems like it's all there's all sorts of ways of of killing those that are fighting against them that they capture. But if it's specifically about them being unwilling um, to uh, bend the knee to to Allah, it seems like beheading seems to be the uh, the execution method of choice. And and maybe I'm reading into that, but it it, it seems to make sense. No, that's, that's exactly where it comes from. You smite at their necks. Mm. Um, so, you know, Islam has a, has a history of really violent uh, advance. From the very get-go, under Muhammad himself, the only way the religion advances is, is through, through battle and, and through uh, raids and things like that. So, so uh, you know, stealing from people, uh, fighting people, etc., well, initially, this wasn't a concern that much of the West or even of the Eastern Church. It was a little tiny startup religion, you know, down around Medina and eventually Mecca. But within a few hundred years, through conquering, 
Islam had spread throughout the Arabian Peninsula and into North Africa. He eventually conquered nearly all of Iberia, so Spain and Portugal, and had, had begun chiseling away at the Byzantine Empire in, uh, in what would today be modern Turkey as well. Okay. Uh, in, in the meantime, they took over all of the Holy Lands, Jerusalem and, and, and all of its surrounding what, area. What, 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 uh, what centuries are we talking here? We're talking from about uh, 627 all the way up to the, the start of the Crusades in uh, 1095. Okay. Now, of course, that wasn't the end of the advance of Islam. Sure. Um, we know that, that eventually Islam did conquer the Byzantine Empire, and in the 1400s uh, took over Constantinople itself and basically ended that, that, uh, that nation as a political entity. So the Crusades didn't actually succeed in the end. They, they gave a little pause to the halt of Islam, but it was, it was other battles uh, outside of the, the Crusades to the Holy Lands that, that finally stopped the Muslim advance. So the, uh, the battles against uh, the uh, Turks coming into Europe through uh, Vienna, uh, on the one hand, in the, in the 1400s, and on the other hand, the crusade against the Turks in Iberia, which we normally don't think of as a crusade, but really it was. It was uh, uh, sponsored by, by not only uh, political entities, but by the Church, to drive the, the Muslims out of, out of Spain, and that wasn't completed until 1492. So... But when we're talking about the Crusades, uh, I'm basically going to be talking about the period of the first three Crusades, which is in the 10 and 1100s. Okay. And those, those are the Crusades most people think of. Now, Crusades are a pretty broad term, um, and there were legitimate Crusades and illegitimate Crusades. So I'm not going to try to make any defense for stupid things like the Children's Crusade, um, you know, where, where these, they let kids... <laughs> you know, across Europe to, to try to defeat the Muslims through their innocence or something like that. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm talking about the more, uh, the more recognized crusades that were actually led by, by military leaders uh, under the auspices of, the, of the, uh, the Church having called it. And speaking of the Church having called it, at, at some point, I'm a, I'm a, you know, people often assume that, well, but what about the Crusades? But what about the Crusades? Those horrible Christian people, you know, that they, as, as if, as if the, the church uh, started this whole thing. You know, it's amazing how we forget history. I mean, in reality, this, this began as a defensive posture, right? That's right. Um, you know, if we compare the Crusades to, to other wars, uh, we should really use the same criterion that we use when we judge other wars. So the Church, since the time of St. Augustine, basically, has, has had a position on warfare. It, it's what we call now the just war theory. Okay. Um, three things are required. First, there has to be a just cause for going to war. There has to be a good reason. Um, second, the war has to be waged by someone who actually has authority to wage war, which would be government. Uh, at least according to Romans 13, right? The government bears sure. the sword. Okay? And then the third thing is that the war ought to be waged in a just manner. So, you, you know, if somebody attacks you with a knife, you don't drop an atom on them. That kind of thing. Okay? Um, now, if we judge the Crusades according to this, 
we find out, first of all, there was a just cause. Uh, I'm going to read for you just a little bit, if you'll bear with sure, me. please. Uh, this is from Pope Urban's, Urban II's uh, sermon, where he first preached that we ought to have a crusade. So he said, Your brethren who live in the East are in urgent need of your help, and you must hasten to give them aid which has often been promised them. For as most of you have heard, the Turks and the Arabs have attacked them and conquered the territory of the Greek Empire as far as the Mediterranean and the Hellespont. They have occupied more and more of the lands of those Christians and have overcome them in seven battles. They have killed and captured many and have destroyed the churches and devastated the empire. If you permit this to continue thus a while with impunity, uh, the faithful of God will be much more widely attacked by them. Mm. On this account, I, or rather the Lord, beseech you as Christ's heralds to publish this everywhere and to persuade all people of whatever rank, foot soldiers and knights, poor and rich, to carry aid promptly to those Christians and destroy that vile race from the land of our friends. I say this to those who are present, as men also for those who are absent, moreover Christ commands it. So what had been happening, basically, is as, as Islam advances, uh, they are subjugating the Christians, violating Christian sanctuaries, killing pilgrims to the Holy Land, from, you know, many of whom are from the Western lands, like Francia or England. Yeah. Um, and uh, what Urban is saying is, look, we've been, the Byzantine Empire, our allies, our fellow Christians, have asked us for help. Moreover, if we don't help them, this is only going to get worse. And I have no doubt that he was looking at, at Byzantium as sort of the defense before this gets into Europe again. Uh, and eventually that, that Christians everywhere would suffer. So this was a war, um, not only of, of defense, but also of help for one's neighbor. Um, so just cause on both cases. Okay. Because rulers, after all, are, are charged with defending those under their care, and they're charged with, with uh, you know, standing up with their allies as well. Is part of that. It's always a judgment call with the whole allies and how we get involved with things even today. Uh, but you can also, you can do what's in your best interest to take care of yourself and to care for your own. And it happened to be also good for your neighbor, too. That's right. So, but so that's, that, that checks box one, right? Right. Now, the, the second one, this is where people get hung up, is the idea that that you have to have... Uh, authority to go to war. And people immediately say, well, the Church has no authority to lead people to war. And technically they're right. Um, it has never been a teaching of the Christian Church that we advance our faith through violence. Um, now that has happened historically, uh, especially in the, in the Middle Ages in Europe, but it's not a teaching of the Church, it's not a teaching of the of Scriptures. Right. Um, so the issue is did the Pope have the authority, or was he recognized as, as one having the authority to actually call for warfare? Um, well, when you understand the way the papacy worked in the Middle Ages, especially at this period of time, it's a lot different than today. Today, if a Pope called for war, we'd all say, ah, you're a priest, what do you know? You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily listen to that as authoritative. But the Pope at this time was was not simply a priest. 
he was also uh, a ruler in Europe. He ruled over the Papal States. He had his own army. Um, he had alliances politically with, with other nations. Uh, he was often attacked, often had to, to fight in defense. Um, moreover, the Pope claimed the authority of God over all kings, mm-hmm. that they received their, their right to rule from him. Now, of course, they argued against that to a degree, but theoretically, you know, if you're living in that time, you listen to the Pope, you're listening to an emperor right. as well as a priest. So he's wearing two hats, which is why, of course, the papal crown has multiple crowns mm-hmm. uh, on it to this very day. So in the medieval mind, the Pope did have legitimate authority. He was a worldly prince as well as a prince of the Church. But even so, the crusade was actually led by worldly leaders, by, by kings, counts, dukes, who held political authority in their lands and led the people of their lands into war at the call of the Pope. So you sort of have two layers there of legitimate authority. First is the papal authority, which is a, which is a worldly authority, uh, or at least claimed to be a worldly authority. And then secondly, the authority of all of the regional princes uh, who actually went on crusade and led it. So we do have governments calling this. Now, the third one also becomes a real sticking point for people. Was it waged justly? Mm. And uh, that's, that is a difficult question to answer sometimes, because like every war, the Crusades had their share of atrocities. I mean, when, when uh, at the end of the First Crusade, uh, they finally conquered Jerusalem, we're told that 10,000 Muslims were massacred in the city. After the battle was done, basically, they were hiding up by the dome of the mosque, and the crusaders came up, and contemporary uh, accounts of this say that the crusaders were wading ankle-deep in their blood by the time the battle was over. Okay, obviously, that's going overboard. That's not the just way to wage a war. But you have to remember that the people that they killed were the people who who uh, were defending the city, uh, against them. So in their mind, they were simply carrying out what needed to be done to cleanse the city of, of, of any opposition. Um, but we look at that and we say, well, this is an atrocity. Every war has atrocities. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that's simply, any, any, any war not having an atrocity. You know, writer of the Ecclesiastes tells us that there's a time for everything. It doesn't mean that... Uh, that, uh, you know, there's a time for war, there's a time for peace. It doesn't mean that war... I mean, war, you you, you kill people and you break up stuff. I mean, it happens. And uh, Yeah, exactly. Uh, so what do but you... For the got most just, part... Just got about, just so you know, we got about five minutes, five, six minutes left oh. here. Uh, time goes okay. quickly well, for, here. For the, the most studio. part, the Crusades were, um, you know, were not, uh, were not atrocious acts. In fact, the, the crusaders themselves were commanded to behave a certain way. Now, what kind of guys um, were they were, these? Well, they were... I mean, they these were weren't... The Pope, the Pope wasn't basically. sending out acolytes. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did send a few. Okay. <laughs> big, burly acolytes. Anyways. Right. Well, they're sort of portrayed as these ultra-violent, indiscriminate killers, men who were out to get rich or to gain lands, um, you know, sort of fake Christians... Right. who were indulging their worldly desires under the banner of the cross. And when we look at the actual crusaders who went, this is not an apt description of them at all. 
most they they were commanded basically to act like pilgrims on crusade. Hmm. They were to see their warfare as a holy act. So when they got there, um, they uh, they did things like receive the mass before before battle. They had to go to confession before battle. Hmm. Um, they they uh, marched as pilgrims around the cities they were going to attack barefoot and unarmed before battle. Uh, they prayed. Uh, they fasted. Um, they were they really saw themselves as sort of holy monks while they were on crusade. Most of them, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of them, if I can make up a statistic on the spot. <laughs> there you go. I do it uh, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Most of them impoverished themselves. They uh, they they spent all of their worldly goods in order to go to the east to try to free it from Muslim domination and oppression. Very, very few came back from crusade wealthier than they left. For most of them, it cost them their lands, uh, their families, welfare. Uh, you know, and we can debate whether that was right or not. Sure. But the point is they weren't getting rich. Right. They were not gaining anything from this except... Uh, perhaps the remission of sins, if they conducted themselves rightly in war. And, you know, we don't agree with that, obviously, right. as Lutherans. Sure. But that was the theology of the time. Gotcha. That if you went and you conducted yourself right, you received an indulgence, uh, which gave you forgiveness of sins. Now, we know indulgences like that are wrong, but the people who are engaging this are taught that it's right, and they really think that they're doing something that's positive um, and that's sacrificial as they go. So the Crusaders, for the most part, were not like these, uh, these ones you see in the movies that are just out for blood and power and riches, because they weren't going to get any of that, except maybe a little blood. So Dave, um, as we, you know, we're sitting here today, uh, we just had this terrorist attack in, uh, apparent terrorist attack, it's pretty obvious, ISIS has claimed, uh, um, claimed uh, that it was one of theirs um, in Manchester, England at this Ariana Grande concert. And we, when people bring this into context today, is, is there a way to bring the crusade? I mean, should we leave the crusades as a separate thing in a separate era? Or is there any relationship to that today? And, uh, you know, how, how do you respond to your college students that, that ask, you know, what does this mean for us today as we reflect on the crusades and, and because it does seem like we have a similar movement, although it's uh, you know it's with different means. Yeah, well, we have to remember that as individual Christians, we do not have the right to take up arms against uh, Muslims or anyone else, uh, even our worst enemies. Should they be should they be attacking us and taking our lands as individuals? That is not our right. Um, as church. Uh, that is also not our role to take up arms or to try to spread Christianity through violence or even defend Christianity through violence. The Church defends itself uh, through prayer and, and faithfulness and by showing love to its enemies. But as citizens uh, under a government, we have every right and we should call upon our government to defend us and uh, to, to, uh, to fight if necessary, to go to war if necessary, to stop the violence that is perpetrated against, uh, against uh, our fellow Christians, 
and other citizens as well, because frankly, the terrorists aren't all that discriminating who they kill. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is that a crusade? No, we probably wouldn't call it a crusade. No one's going to be stitching crosses on all of our soldiers' uniforms. Sure. But Christians serving in military, uh, that's an honorable occupation, an honorable calling. You know, nowhere in the New Testament does Christ say you shouldn't be a soldier. In fact, he, when he lifts up examples of faith, one of them is the, the Roman centurion. Absolutely. Who, uh, he, he, you know, he says has greater faith than he's seen in Israel. Uh, and that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't turn around to that centurion and say, oh, by the way, you've got to quit being a Roman soldier now. Yeah, good job no, he, to hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. No worries or anything like that. Right. Um, so, and God gives authority to the government. Uh, specifically to bear a sword. Uh, in Romans 13, this is given. Uh, and, and part of that bearing of the sword is defending its people and its interests against the kind of aggression that we see coming out of, out of uh, radical Islam now. And, uh, Well, that's all we have time for here today in the Student Union. God be with our troops and let us remember our primary task as Christians to pray for peace. Remember, college students, college is tough. You need Jesus, we'll help.